0: text is Luke 2, verses 41 through the end of the chapter. Let's hear God's word. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, seeking him. Now, so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this portion today. Uh, We pray, Lord, that you would open our minds and that you would guide me in all that I say, that it would be true in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Before I get into the text, I want to assure you that we do believe that uh, Jesus went uh, into Hades before he ascended on high. So, I don't know if anybody else saw that. Um, this text uh, is unusual. And uh, all Scripture, of course, is valuable. And uh, yet I would say that not all Scripture is equally valuable. You know, I'm a real economist at heart. And uh, I believe that that's true. So in other words, if you've ever tried to read through the Bible and have failed, um, and I talked with a couple guys about this recently, Uh, it's most likely that you failed in the latter part of Exodus and Leviticus because that's a long, dry spell that you really have to struggle to get through at times. Um, And I think a a person really needs to have been a Christian for a while to appreciate all that they're reading through there. But I think all of us could get bogged down from Exodus 25 to Exodus 40. I mean, it's just all about the tabernacle, all about all the different fabrics, and it's very, very tedious, very repetitive. But so, what I would say then is not all portions of Scripture are equally valuable. And I think I could prove that to you. Let's say that you found fault with that statement. I would just ask you that if you were to be stranded on a desert island and have only one book of the Bible, which would it be? Would it be Exodus? Would it be Leviticus? I doubt I doubt it. Would it be Philemon? You know, what, like 22 verses or whatever it is? No. You'd pick something that has enough meat in it to last you on that island. So, that all portions of Scripture are not equal. And two, some portions of Scripture God has uh, repeated over and over again. A lot of repetition in various parts of the Bible. But there are some parts that are entirely unique. And that's what we get to cover today. Something that's entirely unique. So, before we get into this text, though, I wanted to point out to you that because people have such an interest in the youth of Christ there has been a lot of stuff made up about the youth of Christ. And I'm going to share a little bit of it with you. It's bizarre. Um, Not all of it's bizarre, but still. I picked some that are bizarre and some that are kind of so-so. This is from the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. It's one of these... If you go to Borders and look in the religious section, you'll find a Bible... And then you'll find a whole bunch of stuff on the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas, the Infancy Gospel of Mary. It's just sad. You know, I, I definitely wouldn't suggest a new Christian go to Borders to pick out their Bible. You don't know what they're going to come home with. But this is from the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. Now, when Jesus was five years old, there was a great rain upon the earth, and the child Jesus walked about therein, and the rain was very terrible. And he gathered the water together into a pool and commanded with a word that it should become clear, and forthwith it did so. And then, I'm not going to go into the quotes because they're kind of long, but while a youth in Egypt, a little boy in Egypt, he brought a dried up fish to life, and when his young companions witnessed this, they went home and told their parents And the landlady of Joseph and Mary found out about it, and she ejected them from the home that they were renting from her. Uh, That pool story that I just mentioned to you, uh, he also at that time made 12 clay sparrows, but it was the Sabbath day, and so he was upbraided for this. But while one of the Pharisees was coming to get him, supposedly, he gave life to these 12 sparrows and had them fly away, maybe destroying the evidence, I don't know. And then, after he had made this pool, supposedly when he was five years old, and he's sitting there and he cleared it, and he made these sparrows, uh, a, a son of a Pharisee took a stick and knocked a hole in it and caused the water to drain out. So Jesus killed him. He cursed him and he died. And in each of these stories, the more bizarre they get, Jesus essentially is kind of like a superhuman that doesn't know his own strength and he'll zap people, and, and you know, then he's kind of chased out. But, but this is what people come up with in order to portray the youth of Christ. The text I read you is what God wanted us to see. It's the only thing God wanted us to see. Isn't it interesting? In a 30-year life, God only wanted us to see this one little glimpse at Christ's youth. And so we have to ask ourselves, why? Why was it so important? And I believe we'll get into that. First, uh, with the first portion of this text, I wanted to show you that uh, Joseph and Mary are very faithful. Now, we already know this. We suspect this. I mean, you know, that's why Mary was chosen, right? But uh, yet they're faithful in their religious observance. In verse 41, it says, His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. Not everybody did. All the men were supposed to go three times a year. But the poorer people that lived farther away tended to not do that. And by this time, it was really a custom that if people were going to make it to one of these annual feasts, it was the Passover. But they came every year to the Passover feast. And if you notice in verse 43, when they had finished the days, what that means is this, Passover was only one day. And yet it was immediately followed by the seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so they came not only for the Passover, Many people came for that, but then most people filtered out over the next seven days. They did not stay for the entire duration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but they did all the time. And it says here when the days had ended. So Joseph and Mary basically were devout. They came here to Jerusalem for this festival. They're going to stay for the whole thing. In verse 42, we read, and when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. I want to ask you, What do you think custom of the feast means? Because you can figure it out in context, but it's not obvious necessarily. Let me read verses 41 to 42. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. So now, is the custom related to the fact that they're going to Jerusalem? I don't think so. Because they'd already introduced the fact that they were going to Jerusalem every year for the feast, and it wasn't mentioned in verse 41 that it was the custom. What have they introduced in verse 42 that's new, that's different? And when he was 12 years old. And when he was 12 years old, they... Now, who does they mean? Jesus is included. At the time, we wouldn't have known that. If, if, if Luke had stopped writing there, would we have known that Jesus was with them? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. When Jesus was 12 years old, they, the first verse had said they, verse 41 had said they went, and that was only Joseph and Mary. But here now that they includes Jesus. And they, and when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. Now, was it Joseph and Mary's custom? No. It was the custom of the feast. So see, I think it's pointing clearly to the fact that when boys... Are 12 years old, the custom was they would join their parents in going up to the feast. Now, men had to go to the feast. All males had to go to the feast. But the question then is, at what age? You know, I mean, dads wouldn't take a six month old to the feast with leaving mom behind, and it wasn't required that these six month old boys go to the feast. It was the male of a certain age. And uh, there's a theologian, a Puritan theologian by the name of John Gill, and he studied all the Jewish uh, uh, literature. And it was his belief that the law required that these male children join in going with their fathers to the feasts at 13. But it was customary for the boys when they turned 12 to join them in going. So it's kind of like getting them used to it. You know, they had to go in there at 13, and so then it was typical for the dads to take them a year earlier to kind of begin to get them into this. They did the same thing with other religious uh, adherences, you know, observances, like fasting. You know, you wouldn't really expect a child to fast like an adult can fast, and so what you do is you introduce them to it. You don't start, you know, making them not eat for days on end. I mean, that's cruel. And so what we do is we have them not eat this or that, and then we extend the period of time, that type of thing. So that's what this is. It was the custom then, when boys were 12, to go with their fathers for this Passover feast. And uh, in, verse, uh, uh, in Exodus 23, verse 17, and in uh, 34, 23, this same phrase is repeated. Three times in the year, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. And see, when this was written... Jerusalem wasn't really the place of worship, right? And so it's interesting. The wording in the book of the law is wherever it is appointed. And so for many years during the time of the judges, the appointed place was Shiloh. But then after David had conquered, uh, I forget what the name of the city was before Jerusalem. It, it, was, it was a different, slightly different name. But anyway, when he conquered that high place, uh, and and they had said. Remember, they had taunted him. They said, "You'll never take this place." And I mean, he took it very quickly, you know, by God's design. But so then, Jerusalem became what it became and what it still is now. Really, you know, this this uh, historical Israeli capital. So now, who here is a 12-year-old boy? Do we have any 12-year-old boys? Jonathan, Paul, any more? Sam. Joseph, sorry, I'm always mixing up the Dexter boys. Anybody else? We just have those three? Moms will know, the boys might not. Okay, so we got three 12-year-old boys. Would you boys stand up? Look how big these boys are, right? And now, stand up 11- and 13-year-old boys, just because you know they're kind of in the same age group. All 11- and 13-year-old boys, please stand up. There you go. Look at this. See? So we've got what? Like, Now, is anybody hiding? Okay. So we've got like seven guys here standing up. Oh, there you go. I didn't even see you standing up there. Very good. So quite a range of heights. These guys have not reached their full height, right? I mean, they're all going to grow taller. Okay. Go ahead and sit down, guys. Thank you. Sorry to make you a spectacle for everybody. But I just wanted us to see how small a 12-year-old boy is. You know, I mean, they're, they're fairly small. And yet, we know what's happened. He's spent two and a half days on his own in a city as big as Jerusalem, just after this festival. I mean, it's just incredible. So, let me read verse 43. When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. Now, this text gets really interesting here, doesn't it? Jesus lingered behind. There are two questions that I think everybody that's ever read this text has in their, in their minds. First, didn't Jesus know they were leaving? And if he didn't go with them, was he sinning? How could this be? How could he have not done what it is that he you know he should have done? And the second question is, how could they have not known that he wasn't with them? Right? I mean, these are two questions that we have to ask. We might already know the answers. But you know, part of what I'm going to uh, go through here is really answering these two questions. But yet, they're questions that loom large in our minds, and scholars differ in the answers. And let me give you the two answers. Now, this is to the first question: Did Jesus know that they were planning to leave? This is an answer by two men by the last name of Abbott. They wrote, you know, commentaries on the Bible. We must suppose that his being left behind by his parents was not designed on his part both because he at once returned with his parents when found, and also because his remaining at Jerusalem intentionally, without his parents' knowledge or consent, could hardly be reconciled with his duty as a son. So these men said, Jesus must not have known that they were leaving. And so therefore, that absolves him of any guilt related to this. Now here's the yes answer. This person believes that Jesus knew they were leaving. This is John Gill again. They knew not of his intention to tarry longer, nor of his design in so doing. He did not ask leave of them, since his stay was about an affair of his heavenly fathers. Now, let me read you a little commentary that he adds on this. And therefore, this action of Christ is not to be drawn into an example or precedent for children to act without consulting or asking leave of their parents. (laughs) So, I mean, I just had to add that because it's kind of cute. But I don't know that I entirely agree with John Gill. I, I certainly say yes. Jesus knew what he was doing. Obviously, his parents didn't. But I don't, I think we'll have more detail to this. But anyway, the reason that people are so caught up about this, of course, is that it addresses potentially sin. You know, why would he do this? this wasn't this wrong? And that's what Mary sure felt later. We'll get to that later. But there was no disobedience, it's just assumed because he didn't go with them, that he was being disobedient. But I beg to differ, and we'll get into that. We'll discuss this more later when Mary finds him. But now, the second question. Let's talk about that. How could they not know that Jesus wasn't with them for a whole day as they traveled north towards Nazareth? They're leaving Jerusalem. They're basically going downhill. Everybody goes downhill when you leave Jerusalem, and uh, they're heading north. But, you know, who of us, with children... Can't understand that you can lose your kids for periods of time. I mean, everybody knows this. You know, Kids get away from us. Even little babies that learn to crawl get away from us. It's, it's no wonder that a 12-year-old can, who's all caught up into things. So, I, uh, just a few weeks ago, we watched Home Alone. Uh, and, uh, and Oh, it's a favorite. And so we watched actually Home Alone, and then the next week we watched Home Alone 2. And in Home Alone, the first one, he gets banished to the attic for disobedience. The power goes out. The alarm doesn't go off. Everybody's running around like crazy the next morning. And meanwhile, Kevin is upstairs sleeping away in the attic. And then they have this kind of contrivance of them all getting on the plane late and just kind of handing them all the tickets, that type of thing. So, you know, here's this boy now, nine-year-old boy on his own. Home Alone 2. You have something similar happen with him unplugging things. And then at first you're thinking, oh, no, he's not here. Oh, but then Kevin pops his head around. He's here. Well, then they're at the airport. And he's rummaging around in his dad's bag for batteries when he stops. And he sees his father's mohair coat going down the thing, and he stops. And then another man, of course, slips in there, and he's got a new mohair coat to follow. So then he gets onto the wrong plane. He runs up with his ticket, and he runs into the flight attendant. All the tickets are on the ground, and they shoo him onto the plane. And and he spots the man with the mohair coat so yeah, that's my dad. So then he's in New York City. So this is how movies portray kids that age getting lost right, for more than a few minutes. But uh, I think in Home Alone 3 and 4, the dad just hands them the keys when they leave. I think that's what happens there. There's no No, there is a four. But uh, now, we realize this is contrived, and it kind of is a challenge for our imaginations to think how this could be. But have you been at the Kaisers on a Sunday afternoon and not know where your kids are? I can guarantee that we've all been at the Kaisers and not known where our kids are if you had kids. And could you imagine such a festive environment as the Kaisers' household on a Sunday afternoon with at most 100 people? Now make it 1,000 people. Now make it 10,000 people. Now make it 100,000 people. I mean, this was an incredible time. And the Passover was the festival. And so the people would have to string out over a long distance in order to make that trek, right? Because you're on a path. I mean, this path isn't meant to hold 100,000 people. And so all the people would tend to string out. And this is the first time I believe he's gone with them. But we'll get into a little bit more of that later, perhaps. But so we could see now how that could happen. They're traveling all day. They're just enjoying themselves, talking, singing the Psalms of Ascent. And so they just just enjoy. They're enjoying their time. But then they get to the end of the road, wherever they're going to spend the night, and then they can't find them. So, I want to bring up a topic, though, along the lines, you know, the Bible doesn't always explicitly talk about certain topics, but here I believe it comes definitely close enough for for us to bring this up and talk about it, and it's important. The question is one of negligence, parental negligence, just basically general negligence. And so my question is this, um, when does such negligence Warrant discipline of a parent, you know, of an adult, uh, the adult in the situation. Obviously, um, I did some uh, research, you know, on the news yesterday and found several instances where such things have occurred. I mean, and we've all read about these. Um, a driver of a daycare uh, takes children to and from places and l- happens to leave one of the babies locked up in the back seat for like three or four hours because they just totally spaced it off. The baby was sleeping, and then they find the baby dead later you know, from, from heat, uh, heat stroke or whatever. Um, and so this stuff happens. It, it, it really happens all the time. As a matter of fact, uh, just in looking at this, it was odd, but I found in two instances, one in North Carolina and one in Chicago, where uh, a, a second look has been taken at a recent death that would typically be ruled an accident. But in each case, a child in each of the homes within the past few months has died of the same cause, and so immediately they, they think, oh no, you know the earlier one that we ruled an accident maybe was not so. And so now they're pressing charges on in both cases on on the parents. Um, and so you know where does negligence blend into some disciplinable crime? Uh, let me read Exodus uh, 21 verses 28 and 29. Exodus 21 verses 28 to 29. If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. But if the ox tended to thrust with its horn in times past and it had been made known to its owner and he has not kept it confined so that it has killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. So see the first is a reasonable freak accident. The second is a disciplinable crime. That person knew this could have happened and they did not protect these unsuspecting people against it. That's God's law, that's God's word, that makes sense. Essentially, the assumption is that we are innocent until we are proven guilty of something. That's the same criminal justice system that we have employed in this country. We're innocent until we're proven guilty. And so the presumption is that if you don't have a criminal history, You didn't mean malintent, unless, of course, the evidence is against you and the evidence will be considered. But Jewish law provided a similar system of justice, and it was these cities of refuge. And so let me go take you to Numbers 35, and we'll talk a little bit about the cities of refuge. Again, the reason I choose to address this is that I think this negligence of Joseph and Mary kind of comes close enough for us to discuss it. Numbers 35 And I'll read a little bit from starting at verse nine. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, you shall appoint cities to be cities of refuge for you that the manslayer who kills any person accidentally may flee there. They shall be cities of refuge for you from the avenger that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation in judgment. Did you catch that? He shall not die before he stands before the judgment of the congregation. That's us. That's trial by jury standing before the congregation. Certainly they couldn't have him standing before everybody in Israel, right? And so there's some subset of people that selected to to review this. That's the way they had it designed. Now, let's read a little bit later. He covers actual murders from 16 to 21, but then I want to skip past that to verse 22. And this is talking about people that didn't mean to kill somebody. However, if he pushes him suddenly without enmity or throws anything at him without lying in wait or uses a stone by which a man could die, throwing it at him without seeing him, so that he dies while he was not his enemy or seeking his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood according to these judgments. So the congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood. Who is the avenger of blood? We have a whole uh, Bible book written really about the avenger of blood, but a different term is used for it. In the book of Ruth, it's called kinsman-redeemer. Boaz is Ruth's kinsman-redeemer. And so if, if Ruth or Naomi, for instance, had suffered uh, a, a, a crime done against them, Boaz would have been the man that would have been called in in such a case to see that justice was done because he was their kinsman-redeemer. Kinsman-redeemer, avenger of blood, same. They're the same role. It's a man And he's the closest in bloodline to this person. And he has not only the right to avenge the blood, he has the responsibility to avenge the blood. When, if a person commits a crime and they flee to a city of refuge and the congregation looks into it and finds that the man is guilty of this crime, the avenger of blood is the first one to cast the stone at that man or execute him himself. And so in Israel the men of Israel were all ministers of justice, essentially. They all had a role in meeting out justice to people. Whereas in our culture, we've adopted the judicial system that really buffers us from that. Just as we have butchers that allow us not all have to go out and slaughter cows, we have a justice system that is supposed to protect us from really the nitty-gritty of having to meet out this justice as is done here. And... Uh, I really want to bring up this difficult thing that occurred with the Beasleys. And I know this is kind of close for some of us, but uh, three weeks ago yesterday, a Josh Beasley accidentally shot his wife. Um, he made a couple of horrible mistakes, uh, but uh, let's talk first about the details. They had gone shooting that day with his 12-gauge. He had come home, he had cleaned the gun, and he had put three shells in it, one in the chamber, two in the, in the magazine. And then he had gone off to do other things, and he came back, and he picked up the gun, and he started doing something that he and his wife had done before, and that was called uh, intruder. It was like a game. And so he would walk through the house pretending there was someone that he was looking for. And he walked into the kitchen, she turned around, saw him with it, pointed his, her finger at him, he pointed the gun at her, pulled the trigger, and shot her, and killed her. Um, and... Uh, You know, he made two horrible, horrible mistakes. Obviously, the first mistake had been, obviously, that they had played that game before with an unloaded weapon, and he would point it at her, and he would pull the trigger. Apparently, that's all I can figure out. Why else would he ever pull the trigger? And so, those are horrific mistakes. But, stupidity. Is stupidity a reason why we should have this person go to jail? And really, uh, most juries will say no. You know, if this does go to trial, it will probably result in him being acquitted. But the question is, should it go to trial? And what I wanted to point out here was this. It isn't to talk at length about what just happened, you know, and what's in our society and stuff. Um, In my research, it seems like our judicial system still works reasonably well in this, in this time, uh, assuming you're innocent and not punishing you for being stupid. But... If you're really negligent, and if you've done it before, then yes, you should be held accountable. But my point is this. The cities of refuge offered a very unique uh, function in the society of Israel. And this, the function was this. If you didn't necessarily know, as the avenger of blood, that this person had intended this, their life was in your hands. I mean, you could execute them if you wanted to, but you really had to come to that determination. Um, It was your call. You didn't have to execute that person. Now, some cases you did, but you didn't have to normally. That was your responsibility. And so, for instance, in uh, Josh's case, who would the kinsman redeemer be? Who would the avenger of blood be? It would be her father. And so he then has this role to play Now, it's my understanding that her father has come forward to stand for Josh, but yet, you know, when you read the news articles, some of the people that say they're related to her have spoken harshly about him. Not really harshly, but still, you know, why would he do such a stupid thing? It's just hard for them to imagine someone being so foolish. But, you know, that's us as individuals being self-righteous. That's us seeing ourselves as above some level of making errors that other people, only people beneath us can make. Um, and that's just not us. You know, Humans are all over the map in terms of stuff like this. So, what I wanted to point out though is that when you look at biblical law and when you look at these cities of refuge, it was such a beautiful protection for the person who has happened to kill somebody, but yet it's also a way of involving the aggrieved. You know, they've got to work this through. So now you have, I think, and and I apologize if this might offend people, but with Josh and and Elena specifically, and did I say Alicia? If I did, I apologize. But with Josh and Elena, you have kind of a divide, a, a wedge driven between those two families. And it's a wedge that our criminal justice system really can only make wider. It can't really draw it together. Whereas the whole concept of the city of refuge and the avenger of blood, it really would have to draw them together. Now, it could drive them apart. But it also could draw them together. It could really absolve Josh of guilt related to this. I mean, to me, that's the big thing now for him is he's got to cast his guilt upon Christ. And that, that must be very difficult for him to do right now. But again, kind of way off topic. But when it came to this aspect of parental negligence, I really felt it was appropriate for us to talk about crimes just generally like that. Okay, back to the text. Uh, and I'm in Numbers. Uh, Luke 2, and uh, let me read verses uh, 43 through 46. When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple. That's as far as I want to go. Um, imagine Mary's anxiety. I mean, you know, uh, the first day was wonderful. She's just enjoying the, uh, the afterglow of this whole Passover uh, thing. But then when they get there, and throughout the day she might have even thought, Oh, I wonder where Jesus is, I wonder where Jesus is, you know, but never a worry. But then they get there, Jesus is nowhere to be found. So who doesn't think that she's trying to insist to Joseph that they head back in the night, you know, and he has to convince her, No, Mary, we you know, we'll probably pass him in the night, you know. I mean he might be sleeping along the trail, who knows? So the next day they get started bright and early. And now they're really dealing with a lot fewer people because all of the people that had been there have pretty much left by now except for the stalwart few, like Jesus, you know, who stayed behind to sit at the teacher's feet. But so anybody they can find, though, they're surely asking, have you seen this kid? He's about this high, you know. He's, he acts like this. He's dressed like this. Uh, never find him. So all day, anxiously, first sleepless night, all anxious day, second sleepless night, in Jerusalem now, they're somewhere. So, uh, then too, think about this. Uh... Jesus was an enemy of the state about 10 years earlier. King Herod wanted him dead. And there had been little boys killed because they wanted this boy dead. And so they must be thinking, could he have been discovered? Could they have found him? Surely they must have thought this. I mean, you know, so we just can't imagine this. We don't pull it all together. But here they're going this long with this. So. I believe, too, that this is probably the first time that uh, Jesus had even been in Jerusalem. It's really doubtful that he had been there. They weren't a wealthy family, and they lived 70 miles away. And the last place they would want to take him is Jerusalem. But they probably thought, ah, this is the festival, you know, so all these people, he'll be safe there. So they find him in the temple. Now, before we get to what Mary had to say to Jesus, let's just talk about Jesus being with these teachers. Again... A couple of questions come to my mind, maybe yours, too. Uh, The first is, why would Jesus be sitting with the teachers now? What's different now than before? Second question, why would Joseph and Mary not know to look for him there? So both of these are, I think, logical questions because they get to Mary's anxiety and to Mary's surprise when they find him with the teachers. And I believe upon reflection it's clear Uh, This was an eight-day celebration that was the big deal in Jerusalem out of the whole calendar year. And so these teachers, everybody pretty much that was involved in the religious establishment, has been busy. They've been very busy. That whole week was probably chaos, organized chaos. And yet now, in the day after that festival ends, now is the time where these teachers can really get together and to enjoy one another's company. You know, they couldn't really during the week. I mean, they're all doing all that they need to do that's all a part of the ceremonies and everything. But now they're just sitting around relaxing. They're talking shop, so to speak, you know. And uh, this is where Jesus can really benefit from this. And that's why I believe he's there. They're winding down. And this 12-year-old boy, could he have participated in any of this stuff during the previous week? no. Shoo, (laughs) shoo, but now it's all informal. Now all the formalities are over. So now Jesus could really enjoy this and they could enjoy him. Let me read verses 48 to 49. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know I must be about my father's business? Uh, why would Mary be so surprised by what has happened? I think it's because it's never, ever happened before, nor has Jesus ever even come close to doing anything like this before. Proverbs 22.15 says this, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Was there foolishness in Jesus' heart? No. There was no foolishness in his heart. And so, while Jesus, in many respects, might have been a typical boy, he was not typical in regards to the need for discipline. He needed none. You know, Sure, they can instruct him, but when he's instructed, boom, I'm going to do what's right. And so, as soon as he was cognizant of the fact that his parents were giving him instructions, he would have been obedient, because foolishness was not in his heart. It wasn't in his makeup. So, he's probably always done... Not only what they wanted or asked, but he's probably always been assuming or presuming what they know. He's always probably just ahead of them in doing anything that they were asked of him. Not even because of his divine nature, really, but just because he's a perfect person. And as a young boy, he's wanting to love people. The whole second table of the law is about that, right? The whole second table of the law is about us serving one another, loving one another, and yet, we're all so selfish, we're all so self-centered. Christ really was the only non-self-centered person, right? After Adam and Eve sinned, that's it. You come through that whole dry spell to him, and he's the first one now that is not self-centered and self, uh, self-righteous, all these things. But, so this exchange between Mary and Jesus, uh, I want to I read it again and I want you to focus on this. Focus on the word Father, So when they saw him, they were amazed, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Now, if you have a new King James, you can readily see the difference there. It's father with a small F, father with a large F. Mary points out that she and Joseph were seeking him. And she uses the term father. Jesus responds with the word she used, but he means God in heaven. So see, Jesus had two fathers. He's not saying that Joseph isn't his father. He's not denying Joseph's right to direct him on this earth, but he is asserting to Mary, his mother, that he knows who he is and that he knows now that he must be serving God. And it's just a a, a very interesting exchange between uh, Mary and Jesus here. And let me look earlier, too, right at the beginning. uh, Verse 41. This is Luke writing. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. So now he's lumping Mary and Joseph together as Jesus' parents. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they'd finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind and Joseph and his mother did not know it. You see what happened there? Jesus lingered behind, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. He doesn't say, and his parents did not know it. He could have easily written his parents did not know it, but he didn't, because he was separating Jesus with his father in heaven from Jesus, his earthly adopted father. Do you see? It's so subtle, but yet when you reread it, it's so obvious, and it's really part of this whole thing. And note, too, uh, Jesus was not rebelling against Joseph in doing this. It's just we have to understand what's going on. And now we come to the main point. In verse 49, there is dispute as to what this phrasing means. And he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? There's dispute about what this means. And in the Greek, it's actually quite cryptic. It's quite, quite few words are used to, to say this sentence. And uh, from the context, you can't necessarily figure it out. And so the, the texts you have to work with are really the same. You know, the majority text and the eclectic text, they're really very little difference. But the, uh, the majority text, the, the New King James has said, about my father's business. That's what he says, it's about my father's business. Whereas the New International Version says, in my father's house. And so the New King James says, about my father's business. The NIV says, in my father's house. Now, a a commentator that I have, a set of commentators on, Hendrickson, he says that it is the NIV, it's in my father's house, and he says this. He says the entire question in this whole text is about where-ness. whereness. wheres Jesus? And I disagree. From Joseph and Mary's perspective, it's all about where. For Jesus, it's not about where. Jesus is emphasizing the disconnect between their thinking and his own. He's asserting the fact that he knows his Father in Heaven and he must serve him. So, for Jesus, the question is not where, but what. If you knew... He's telling Joseph and Mary, he's saying, if you knew what I'm to do, you would know where I was. It would not have been a mystery where I was. And in a sense... I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a rebuke but it's certainly an assertion of who he is that Mary and Joseph appear to have forgotten by this time because like I said you know it happened 10 years ago but still you have to really wonder how that could happen how could they not understand so again we talked about why now why is this happening now and it's the fact that Jesus has turned 12 but for kind of a different reason than what we talked about, the custom of him coming down to uh, Jerusalem. Remember, I said it was the custom for them. Remember what the law was? John Gill said the law was Jesus didn't have to be there until he was 13. But what's interesting is this. Another custom that was present in Israel was that the boys would begin to learn the trade of their fathers at 12. That was the custom. And so at 12, these boys would take on the trade of their father. So now, Jesus is 12. He's come to uh, Jerusalem with them. And he has probably already begun to be discipled by his father as a carpenter back home in Nazareth. He's starting to pick up his father's trade. And now he's starting to pick up his heavenly father's trade. He has two trades to learn. He has to be a carpenter for Joseph and Mary. And he has to be the son of God for his heavenly father. So... Christ was one person, though, two natures, two totally distinct natures, one human, one divine. And yet he's one person. And so that one person had to share these responsibilities. He had two fathers to please. And yet he's begun to do that. And uh, in verse 46 and 47, I'm not really focusing on this. I think normally I would focus on this because it's so beautiful. Uh, They found him in the temple and in the midst of the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. All who heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. Um, That's the beautiful thing that probably normally I would have spent a lot of time on. But uh, we understand that. We know Jesus. We know he would have wowed these people. Some people go so far as to say that he was teaching all these teachers And I don't think so. I mean, you know, he's a 12-year-old boy. He's there and he's learning and he's just impressing them with his knowledge. He's impressing them with his understanding of Scripture. But in verse 50, Mary is spoken of and Joseph is spoken of, but they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. What is the statement that he spoke to them? Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? They did not understand this. They didn't realize that he had this second apprenticeship that was going on. They really still didn't understand the ramifications of that. And yet, the angel Gabriel had appeared to Mary, an angel of the Lord had appeared to a Joseph three times, and then had warned him in a vision to not return to Judea, but instead to go to Nazareth. But all that again had occurred 10 to 13 years earlier. So... They've just had a long time. And now, too, they've had how many more children since then? They've had several more children since then. So, they're just a family. And they're viewing it as a family. And here they are. They've gone on this big expedition, and they're just floored by this huge transition that's occurred in Jesus' life. But, you know, he needed them to know this. And he did. And he did. You know, share that with them. So, they all return to Nazareth. And... Uh, Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. This was a big surprise to Mary and Joseph. But Mary appears to at least have learned this. It speaks of this as being in her heart now. Now, uh, we don't know exactly, but another 18 years occurs before Christ's ministry. And by that time, it appears that Joseph has passed away. And you can imagine how difficult it must be for Joseph to be Jesus' dad on the earth. But uh, Mary is more watchful. She kept these things in her heart, and Jesus has returned and becomes subject to them, really remains subject to them. And here you have the Son of God being subject to earthly parents, a Joseph and a Mary. You have the perfect being subjected to the imperfect. You have the holy and sinless being subjected to the sinful. We know Jesus never warranted discipline, but was he? Probably. You know, the oldest kids always take the brunt, right? I mean, the oldest kids are going to get disciplined. Why didn't you stop your brother from doing this? Why didn't you stop your sister from doing that? You know, I mean, older brothers, older daughters take a lot of flack for that. And we know it. We're parents. We know how this works. But so that's why there's a lesson here for all of us, I think, uh, in regards to this. Um, If Jesus can submit to earthly authorities, being the perfect son of God who deserved no discipline, no harsh words, surely we must be under authority. We must submit to authority. And I asked uh, Tom's permission. He told me a story this morning. And again, it was apropos to the message. Um, This week he had to discipline someone. And he told them, I want you to do this. Do you understand? Yes. I want you to not do that. Do you understand? Yes. Do you agree to this? Yes. Yes. But then later, when found that they were doing the very same thing he told them not to do, why were you doing this? Because I didn't think your rule made sense. <laughs> he says, okay, now we've got a different matter to talk about. You know, Who's the boss here? And then the person just left. Didn't want to hear it. Quit. Um, that's the earth. That's sinful man. That's our rebellious heart speaking. We just want to rebel all the time. And yet we must submit. And Christ is our example. Christ submitted to his earthly parents. And if Christ could submit to imperfect parents, surely imperfect children on this earth should be able to submit to imperfect parents on this earth. And imperfect employees must submit to imperfect employers. This is just the way of the world. We must do this. Verse 52, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and men. So we see he increased in wisdom and stature. Wisdom is regarding making wise choices in your thoughts, in your actions, Stature could mean something, just your height, or it could mean uh, you know, basically your character, your, your role in the society. But then the next phrase goes on to say that, and in favor with God and men. So stature really could be taken as favor. So I think stature here refers to the fact that these seven boys are going to get taller. That's what it means. It means that Jesus wasn't at his full height, his full potential, and he yet had things to do, and yet he would grow in favor with God and men. Ask yourself this. How could Jesus grow in favor with God? How was that possible? It's kind of a puzzle, right? But yet Jesus had what theologians call a reasonable soul. He is both God and man. And so in his manhood, he could grow in favor with God. And how did he do it? How did he grow in favor with God? through the same tools God gives us to grow in favor with God. Reading the Bible, attending worship service, you know, obeying God, uh, singing, memorizing scripture, uh, all of these tools that God has given us, that's what Christ mastered. Christ mastered these tools and he perfected his humanity. And so we are called to do the same. And so uh, as I close, I just want to remind us all, really, that we're all obviously... Uh, Involved in this because we all really are rebels at heart. We all must submit to the authority of those over us on this earth. But I also say to the children, especially, you know, um, a 12-year-old Jesus could be held accountable for this, uh, for adhering to the, uh, you know, wisdom of an imperfect uh, mother and father, and so should you. And uh, with that, let's close. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that Jesus did come as a man. And yet, he also lived as a boy. And as a boy, he came to a point where he recognized and he embraced his role of being an apprentice to you in heaven. Uh, Father, this is uh, just so amazing to contemplate that the God of the world, uh, Jesus, the creator of all things, uh, became a babe and became a young boy, uh, submissive to his earthly parents. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts and our minds to accept this, that we ourselves would be submissive as you uh, modeled for us in Jesus. Be with us now, we pray. We thank you for this day and ask your blessing upon the pastor and his wife as they enjoy the remainder of the day in Kansas City in return. In Christ's name, amen.